Welcome to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Zarrell. With me, as always, is professional film critic, Sean Patrick. Visit us at IHateCritics.net, Everyone'sACriticPodcast.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Stitcher, all your, not Stitcher, uh, Instagram. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're social media part right now, okay? Uh, our handle is Critics Pod. Uh, you can listen to us at Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Alexa, all your podcatchers. Right interview the show and give us a five star review. We will. You'll be the next one to do that. We'll get a copy of the 4K Blu-ray version of I Spit on Your Grave. Uh, so we will read as really review. as a commemoration of our episode more than anything. Yes. Like if people are wondering why we're doing that, it's, it's in commemoration of the episode that we did on I Spit on Your Grave, not a tribute to the movie. Not a, I don't think the movie is is you know worthy of any kind of tribute really, but we did it. We did a really great episode about it, so it's a nice companion to have. Yes, and you can listen to that on patreon.com slash critics pod. You can also listen to our other uh, bonus episodes, lots of A24 episodes. Uh, we also started talking about music on there. We've already done Nirvana and Metallica. We're totally, it just hit me now. We were going to do the Beatles this weekend. <laughs> so I didn't even think about it till right now. <laughs> uh, but that one's coming up as well. Uh, so, you know, if you want to get a, be a Patreon patron, look for that one in your Christmas stocking. <laughs> yes. Patreon.com slash critics pod. <laughs> then there's our T public page. Uh, if you search critics pod at tpublic.com or go to, I hate critics and click on the T public link. You can also watch this live on YouTube, usually Monday evenings, uh, about seven, eight o'clock central time, uh, on occasion, Sunday or Tuesday. Uh, but, uh, if you want to watch us live, that's when you can do it. You never know what's going to happen either because it's live. You just never know with us. We're so unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> nothing's ever happened, but you just never know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's jump to our episode and uh, I will start participating about halfway through <laughs> when I start seeing movies. Uh, let's start with The Hand of God. The Hand of God, uh, directed by Paolo Sorrentino, uh, believed to be a, a real contender for the uh, Best Foreign Film at the Academy Awards. And uh, it's a, a movie about a family that really lives for soccer. There's, they live in Napoli in, the, in 1984, and soccer is everything to the main character, to the, to the young man the main character, as well as his, just his entire family just loves it. Uh, and there's a chance that Napoli could land the man known as the hand, who will become to be known as the hand of God, uh, Diego Maradona. And uh, he does come to there. But that's kind of tangential to the story as a whole, because it's really just about this family and the things that happen to them. The, the life that evolves for this young man as he's trying to make a transition from childhood to adulthood. And it's similar to the real life story of Paulo, Paulo Sorrentino himself and how he came to become a filmmaker and the the various things that influenced his life the early death of parents the loss of other family members the the unusual uh fidelities of of sexuality and this uh, relationship that he has to his aunt who is not a blood relative but certainly there's some weirdness there for sure that sort of creates his fascination with uh, i would say confrontational sexuality in a way uh it's a very challenging film it's also a very slowly paced movie it unfolds very slowly uh it's beautiful uh it's rather meandering at times like it kind of pointless the whole diego maradona part i guess is is intended to be just this was a huge thing in napoli and it was hugely influential on his family and where they were when that happened and it's sort of definitive of the time time frame of the of their life at that time so i get it why it's there but i i guess i guess when they talk we we were talking about the hand of god it's as if the hand of god as in terms of god the father is reaching down into their lives and changing it in different ways uh, seeming to mold a life the life ahead for this young man and so that's kind of a double meeting to maradona's arrival and to you know god intervening in his life and changing it forever with the uh, with the you know the death of family members and so on and how that affected him, uh, I think it's a very good movie. I just I don't love it. 
Yeah, it, so it's not a religious movie, or and there's really there's faith in it, but it's not faith based, or is it? Right, it's not faith based at all. No, no, oh, yeah. it's it's not. It's there. Religion is there, like in any any Italian film, you know, because right because of just it's Italy, <laughs> but uh, it's, religion <laughs> is not a yeah. Uh, the religion is not a main focus of the film. No, the hand of God is really more implied in terms of religion. Uh, and the hand of God is literally that of Maradona as in 1984, he famously scored a goal by hitting it with his hand and knocking it into the goal, but they didn't call it a penalty as they should. And it counted against his former team, Argentina and gave Napoli a, a win that nobody expected them to get a miracle. If you will. They literally call him the hand of God because he scored that goal. They won did you <laughs> over know, Argentina, his former team. Did you know that prior to the movie? Or I think so. Uh, like I, th- I think I saw the ESPN documentary on it. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Soccer uh, is the biggest thing in the rest of the world, Bob. No, like where we. It's a big thing for hipsters here too. <laughs> now my wife's a big was a big soccer fan uh she played yeah. you know unlike junior world cup teams and stuff like that uh but yeah I, that's cool <laughs> uh anything else on the hand of god it's on netflix i see so yeah he can watch it i don't i don't discourage anyone from watching it but it, but i wasn't transfixed by it you think it'll win probably it's got that kind of middle of the road quality that people, you know, more people tend to move, move towards than away from like something like we'll talk about next, which <laughs> it's not going to, not going to, it's certainly not going to bring people together. <laughs> There's another. Okay. I don't know. I just kind of had these randomly. So the next movie is not the right one. I apologize. Oh, I thought, I thought you had been Benedetto next. I actually do. Your line up there. I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, but I, I mean, this is Paul Verhoeven, so I, I was kind of uh, shocked. It's French, actually. So it's French and set in Italy, set in Italy for some reason. <laughs> you can figure that out. Um, yeah. Uh, Benedetta is a, a movie about a nun in the 1600s, uh, in the, the playing times. Uh, she goes to the church as a very young child. Uh, is basically sold to the church as if she were being wed to God via a dowry. Uh, she lives at the church. She grows up. Uh, we we don't get to see her grow up. She, we just arrive there and sort of she has a, several kind of one particularly seemingly miraculous incident on her way there where she seems to cause a bird to shit on a guy's face. <laughs> and it saves her family from being robbed. Uh, she ends up going to the to the convent. Uh, Charlotte Rampling is the mother superior there. They take her in. Uh, they essentially buy her, and she becomes a nun. And she stays there for many years. Uh, years later, she starts to have these visions in the night of Jesus, like coming to her as a as a physical form. And uh, there's some very sexual chemistry between she and Jesus in these moments. Uh, but she's also having these sexual feelings for this new nun, uh, this uh, young woman who comes to the convent and is uh, purchased by the convent to uh, help her escape from her violent and uh, rapist father. Uh, they begin a sort of a relationship that, uh, that develops into sex while also Benedetta is predicting uh, things. She starts to have the stigmata where cuts appear on her hands and feet and her head but there's there seems to be evidence that maybe she did this herself like she may have cut her own hands and cut her own feet and cut her own head uh and so there's a lot of doubt there but it's a that's kind of the point is creating doubt but also is it real is it not and then her explanation that uh, i did this but god had me do it he put me into a fugue state that, and and caused me to do it so Again, there's a lot to a lot at play here. That's really there's a lot of big questions, but a lot of this is just Paul Paul Verhoeven jerking off. I mean, there there is some hardcore lesbian sex in this movie, just hardcore, like uh, pornographic, basically lesbian sex. He he, pro- and I know he's trying to be provocative, but it just 
some of it comes off as very much him just really, really enjoying himself. Uh, he has the the young girl, the the girlfriend, Bert, uh, Bert, Bert, I can't remember her name, the young girl's name, but uh, Benedetta's girlfriend essentially carves a wooden figure of of Mary uh, into a dildo and uses it on Benedetta uh, so they can see God together. <laughs> Which they, I mean, they, they do seem like they're seeing something. That's for sure. It's very graphic. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of really graphic stuff in this movie. And, and I get it. He's being provocative. And there's certainly a lot of provocative things. And I honestly am, I'm torn as to whether or not I believe that this is just him being provocative or if he actually has a point because this is based on a true story of a nun in in Italy in the 1600s who predicted a plague was coming and the pl- and said that she could protect from the plague and then the plague didn't come so essentially she did protect from the plague but she was also a lesbian so she was punished for it so there i mean it's based on a true story so there's some aspects of it there that are pretty interesting and pretty provocative but at the same time it's paul verhoeven and a lot of it feels very exploitative and cheap uh there's things like they have a romantic moment while shitting together uh (laughs) there's a guy who's on stage lighting farts to beat off demons um (laughs) so just some weird fucking stuff in this movie that i that i can't reconcile with the bigger ideas that he's after it seems like he wants to be Lars von Trier. <laughs> I mean, such a good point. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like if he had done this this exact same movie, we might be looking at it differently. <laughs> but because it's from the guy who did RoboCop, honestly, you know, if I wouldn't know what to, if this was a Lars von Trier movie, I honestly wouldn't know what to say because <laughs> right. But because it's Paul Verhoeven, I'm I'm that much more skeptical about it. Right. It's like he did RoboCop and Showgirls and Basic Instinct. Uh, <laughs> RoboCop or uh, Total Recall, I guess, is his best movie. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just I I, I, I haven't though. seen it. But like, go ahead. Yeah. It's strange that so there are a lot of critics I'm reading who are going or taking this very seriously and taking him very seriously as if he's this grand provocateur like Lars von Trier. And he's always been an exploitation director. He's always that's always what he's been. And and to now sit here and have him be treated like he's Lars von Trier is kind of weird to me. Because <laughs> I do think as as bizarre as von Trier is, he does he does have a lot more artistic credibility than Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't even. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't see it, but just knowing that he's attached to it, it's hard for me to. Like even when you started, kind of halfway, like this is. You didn't say it was good, but you you seemed interested. I mean, and the way you started the review was very like, okay, maybe he's. This is real, <laughs> and then you kind of ended it with, <laughs> but it was Paul per, Paul Verhoeven, so I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, those those lesbian sex scenes are like like incredibly graphic, like the kind you would find on a on a porn site, and that to me kind of leads me away from believing that he is trying to do this with any other purpose than titillation. But then, I guess titillation would be the point in this. But I, I don't know it, where do you where do you draw the line on that? Was Ammonite pornography? I, I don't necessarily think so. But is that just me giving the benefit of the doubt to Kate Winslet, Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan? You know. But there was. Where something, do you draw the line on that presentation? There's something to them being the ones behind it, versus a guy who's got who's famous for, you know, <laughs> tricking Sharon Stone into taking her underwear off, or you know, exploiting a 19 year old Elizabeth yeah. or uh, Elizabeth Berkeley to, you know, I don't know, almost derailing her career with Showgirls. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, I have other thoughts we'll get to later on that I, I think, again, being a different director, it really depends on who makes the movie, if it if it bothers me or not. And he's the guy that bothers me, so I don't know how much I can take something <laughs> this serious. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I don't, I don't know if I can either. I don't, I don't know if I'm necessarily on. I'm not, I don't think I'm on board with it because of him. 
Uh, there, there's a lot of good, like, it's a good looking movie, but all of his movies are kind of good looking in a way. Uh, they're very slick and stylish and whatnot. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's weird. It's very weird. Yeah. All right. Project Space 13. Project Space 13 is a movie by uh, director Michael M. Belandic, and uh, it tells the story of a pair of bumbling security guards who are hired to protect an art gallery in the midst of a of a pandemic-related uh, riot that's happening in New York City and is about to come through the Soho area of New York, the high-end uh you know, Gucci area of uh, New York City. Uh, these two guards are locked in there with this artist who has locked himself inside of his own art project. He essentially is the art project, I guess. He's created all these various different sculptures around him made of, you know, former whatever types of electronics you can find. And uh, then he has a robot that, that tortures him, uh, will hit him with electric shocks, makes him eat bugs, <laughs> that kind of thing. That's how he sustains himself is eating bugs. Uh, and they're going to spend this entire night together, uh, kind of arguing around each other about what is art, what is not, but also like, what do we do? You know, how do, what about violence? Do we, do we get violent with these people if they try and get in here or do we not get violent? A lot of interesting questions, three pretty unique characters and certainly not a, a story that, uh, that is often told, I guess, with these types of characters. They're very unusual, all of them. Um, there's a lot of big ideas, but what does it come to anything? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm at a lot. It's very short. It's only an hour and six minutes long, and in that time, it's you know at least compelling enough to hold your attention. I did. I didn't want to pick up my phone while I was watching it, or I didn't want to do anything else while I was watching it. So that's something. But <laughs> is it good? It's it's okay. It's it's got an idea to it. Is it a super low budget movie? Oh yeah, oh yeah, super low budget. Because yeah, there's no if you go yeah, to IMDb, they, there's no summary of what the movie's about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they made this movie for about ten bucks, borrowed somebody's art gallery, apparently. Oh, well, that at least that's points for me. I know it shouldn't be, but I always tend to give somebody like that the benefit of the doubt even if the movie is not quite as strong uh but i obviously haven't I li- seen it i like the <laughs> i like the conversation that they're having i i, I didn't mind the characters I, I i found the incidents that they came up with to put into the movie were were interesting some of them are kind of funny some of them not but i don't quite know what what the point was at the end like what what was the grander message what was the larger thing that they wanted to communicate there doesn't seem to be one and there doesn't necessarily have to be but it feels like with this story that they're telling there should be gotcha the scary of 61st is that what it is <laughs> I can't. yeah um the words don't make sense so, to me. <laughs> um, the scary 61st, oddly enough, the guys who worked on Project Space 13 are in this movie. Interestingly enough, the director and uh, two of his stars are in this, which is kind of weird. I'm watching this movie. After, I watched this one immediately after Project Space 13. I'm like, that's the guy from Project Space 13. <laughs> that's the director of Project Space 13. Uh, so that was weird, kind of coincidence. They both came out this weekend. Uh, this is a story about two girls who ex- who move into a very cheap apartment, but a very you know large apartment. They're wondering why is this so easy to get into at this price? This shouldn't be that this easy to get into at this price. Well, it turns out that the apartment that they've just moved into was one that was formerly owned by Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein had apparently kept teenage girls in this apartment uh, for many years, and did God knows what to them. And uh, this, the story sort of kicks off. These two women are living there. This woman comes to visit them. Uh, she's she's obsessed with the Jeffrey Epstein case. She's mapping where Jeffrey Epstein kept his girls. And she uh, gets inside their apartment and she starts kind of having this uh, very connected sort of affair with this with one of the girls in the apartment and they're going very deep into the conspiracy theories surrounding Jeffrey Epstein. Meanwhile, the other roommate is becoming possessed by one of Jeffrey Epstein's victims. She is 
wandering around in the night, she goes to Jeffrey Epstein's former apartment and masturbates on his front steps. She <coughs> uh, she's she's like having these massive like sexual dreams about Prince Andrew and flying on Epstein's plane. Like it's all Epstein all the time throughout this entire movie as if Jeffrey Epstein were this demonic presence that was holding all this together. But also not just him though, but like everybody who was part of what he did is kind of this demonic presence hanging over this pentagram shape of places in New York where they claim that there's Epstein's apartment and then there's like in a pentagram around that five different apartments that he owned where he kept his victims. Allegedly, this is all like if somebody really actually went really deep in on a Jeffrey to Epstein conspiracy, this is exactly the kind of thing. So it's as if this director kind of thought, what would it be like if I actually played out uh, (laughs) these conspiracy theories to their, to their most ridiculous degree. And I love that idea. And I thought it was well executed in that way and and very weird and kind of scary, kind of sexy, uh, the director is uh, a woman by the name of Dasha Nekrasova. Ne- I-, I think she's really she's really doing something very interesting here. Yeah, and I, I'm I, again have not seen it, uh, but I'm trying to uh, like. <laughs> I mean, I guess I have made conspiracy theory movies before. I mean, famously JFK. <laughs> uh, yeah. But this is like going on right now, <laughs> the trial and all that. <laughs> I know. There's uh, even a woman who looks like Glenn Maxwell. Oh, in the movie. <laughs> they only see her, but they like they see her, and it's very ominous that they see her, and they become really paranoid that they're being followed, and that plays in. It's a whole thing. You mentioned Prince Andrew. Do they go over anybody else, Clinton or Trump, or anybody else, or not really? They mentioned Clinton. I think they mentioned Trump. Uh, they don't really go into any anyone other than Prince Andrew very specifically. They go in on him pretty hard, but only because she chooses to masturbate with, with a Prince Andrew spoon from his wedding. <laughs> I mean, I'm like super uncomfortable even just thinking about this movie. Maybe that's the point. <laughs> that's the point, yes. Be uncomfortable. And I was about to make a joke right to- when you said Jeffrey Epstein's apartment. I'm like, I'm not going to say it now. <laughs> I thought you were, I was going to say Paul Verhoeven's apartment yeah. oh. and then <laughs> it got very real very quick and I'm just like <laughs> oh yeah yeah it gets weird too because the 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 girl possessing the na- the the uh the roommate is a very very young girl <laughs> wow. by her by apparently her admission as she talks about it so that uh, just adds a whole layer of discomfort <laughs> that that is actually quite uh, I, I it's that's all very subversive which I kind of dig. Now neither you or I can really answer this question but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you were a victim what would this movie would it bother you? Would it I mean I mean we're white males that are middle aged so it's almost impossible to answer but that's kind of the yeah question I wonder. Uh, is it insensitive or exploitative of people who are actually victims of Jeffrey Epstein? And that's a really reasonable question to ask of this. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also playing out, you know, just how it's also pointing out just how evil he is and the conspiracy around him is. So that, which is kind of the whole point. And I mean, I, I so it's on the side of it's, it's on, the, it seems to be on the right side of that, but I don't know. Well, yeah, I can't answer it. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that. I, I guess you could fairly consider it exploitative for sure. I think you could. I could. You could make that argument. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I'd want to see a Bill Cosby movie. That's you know, I mean, <laughs> and again, it depends on how you did it, I suppose. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Definitely made me uncomfortable very, very quick. <laughs> uh. Where is it available right now? Is it? It is in limited release in New York and Los Angeles. It'll be streaming uh, in the next week and a half. Okay. You gonna check it out? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just I don't know. We'll see. 
I mean, I'm assuming it's not on the best of list, so I don't know. Maybe I won't have time. I need to catch up on everything I missed in 2021. Uh, let's move on <laughs> to death of a telemarketer. The death of a telemarketer star is uh, Lamorne Morris as uh, as the best telemarketer selling cable TV packages in his particular building. He's on his way to this $3,000 grand prize for being the top salesman, and he decides to get a little ahead of himself and goes out and buys his, his ex-girlfriend a wedding ring because he wants to ask her to marry him and get back together. So he borrows money from a loan shark who's kind of threatening him via text message. If you don't pay me back, I'm going to kill you, that kind of stuff. Uh, but he's confident. He thinks he's going to win for sure. Uh, then he something happens to where one of his coworkers starts outselling him and he gets into a lot of trouble. So he decides to stay late at work to try and get one more sale to try and beat his coworker. And he ends up trying since all the call, all the call sheets are pretty much burnt out he grabs a call sheet out of the do not call list which leads him to calling this guy named asa played by jackie earl haley and jackie earl haley was very serious about being on the new do not call list this character was so he shows up at the uh, telemarketing office along with his son played by haley joel osmond and they hold him hostage uh they take uh Lord morris hostage and they uh, basically asa wants him to call people on the do not call list and apologize to them until somebody actually accepts his genuine apology for calling them. Uh, and he has 90 minutes to do that or Asa will kill him. Uh, along the way, he's trying to figure out a way to get out of this and trying to you know, fast talk his way out of it. It's all good enough. It's all very competent, but it's also it's not a comedy and it's not a drama. There are elements of comedy. There are elements of drama. There's uh, elements where it's like super bro humor early on, like guys talking about you know, guys just uh, you know, insulting each other's masculinity, and then they're you know, calling him from a strip club. Lots of bro stuff there, and then there's also a Haley Joel Osment's character is really incompetent and stupid and loud. Uh, but then you have these like other moments where like Jackie Earl Haley is delivering a very straightforward, dramatic performance as a dramatic actor would, and Lamorne Morris is in this kind of valley between Eddie Murphy. And Michael B. Jordan, you know, like right. just kind of going back and forth between the the comedy and the seriousness of it, and it all ends up in sort of this uncanny valley between good and bad, between it's competent and it's not terrible, but it's not a good movie. Yeah, what was the? You had like a tagline when I read your review, some like mediocrity, the uncanny valley of yes. mediocrity. Yes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> whatever happened to jackie earl haley i mean i know he had that comeback there briefly then he played freddy krueger and then i haven't seen him since then he, yeah who knows uh he, he of a year seemed like a yeah you know he seemed like a go-to character actor there for a while and i don't know i don't know what's going on yeah all right let's move on to adrian Adrian, the saddest documentary of 2021, at least for me. Yes. Uh, Adrian is about the director, Adrian Shelley, the director of Waitress. Um, this, uh, she was murdered, was just straight up murdered in her uh, New York office not long before Waitress was to hit, uh, you know, a big uh, and make her, you know, a, a real big time director. As far as I'm concerned, she was going to be one of the greats uh, waitress to me is an untouchable classic of a film. It is, it is a movie of such extraordinary emotional and physical detail that it's, it's one of those just movies that you just look at and you just know it's a masterpiece and that the director is somebody who is going to do amazing things. It was the, it, it was, it was for me, it, it's, it's, it's on par with something like seeing, seeing hereditary, Honestly, totally different movies, but at the same time, when I saw Hereditary, I knew Ari Aster was going to go on and create something even greater beyond that. And I know that Adrian Shelley was going to go on and create something even greater beyond Waitress because that much attention to detail in both character and in you know just presentation, people forget just how great looking Waitress is on top of being just so emotionally superior to so many other movies. And that's just the sign of a, I mean, it's a sign of an auteur, just a director as author, just somebody who just has it. 
And this documentary is all about, it's basically like a true crime documentary and a biography taking you through her life, but also taking you through her death. Uh, her husband uh, directed this movie and he takes us to um, meet the man who killed her. We go into the jail and he sits down across from him and they talk and it's very uncomfortable and also, and also very, very fascinating. Just as, fascinating andy ostroy is a pretty brave guy and he's he's gone to a lot of very very good and interesting places here uh it's very cathartic it's incredibly emotional it's very detailed uh it's a perfect tribute to her um i i I think it's amazing yeah i i have no idea if the documentary is any good or if it is trying to say anything other than it's just really really sad i mean it is one of the saddest documentaries I've ever seen. Uh, he definitely, I mean, I, I, it just is, he's pretty much naked making this movie. I mean, he's wearing everything on his sleeve, every emotion. He's mourning right in front of the camera, trying to deal with what's going on. Uh, it's as honest as it gets. Uh, yeah. I, I don't, that scene where he meets the killer is, like I don't know what I wanted out of that. I, I it was just I wanted it to be over, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> when yeah. it happened, I was you know I got really nervous. Uh, I didn't want him to go in there. I wanted him to. I wanted him to back out. I didn't really want to see this confrontation. Uh, I it it's I don't. It, it is such a real honest documentary that I couldn't even tell you what he was trying to accomplish because I was so wrapped up in the emotion of it that the story didn't matter or the purpose. It was just such a, I don't think a movie's ever pulled me in that much to the point where I didn't really care if it was good or not. And it's from all, it sounds like it's fantastic. If I, if I'm making any sense, (laughs) I'm just, I was so wrapped up in the emotion of it that I, I, the movie itself was just there it was the emotion that really won me over and i i don't know it it was something i just wanted to get out of uh but you're right about (laughs) the because it get as as the movie gets going it gets sadder and sadder and yeah uh, and i mean he just goes to everybody and just flat out they just start talking and what they were doing the day she died uh how he interacted with his daughter. He has recordings of their conversations from the, you know, right when she died till the rest of her life up until where they're at now. It's definitely a fascinating movie. uh, And I don't know how you can watch that without getting wrapped in and just, you know, even my wife was like, you just want to be sad. Why are we watching this? Uh, Because, and it's back to your point is it's, it's she was you know richard linkletter sophia coppola you know that was just two names that pop in my head uh ari aster any one of these famous you know auteur directors that just own their movies and you know jason reitman uh and it was just taken away with you know it's not fair it, it's and i when i saw waitress i didn't know the story i didn't know she was dead i didn't know who she was uh so it, it broke my heart so much <laughs> watching that movie and realizing at the end that she was gone just killed me because i just i i just adore that movie it is it's just one of the most emotional experiences of my life watching that movie knowing that she was already gone by then yeah, it was it was devastating because that movie is so brilliant. Well, and to my point, I get emotional just thinking about yeah. that movie. Well, and my point is, I didn't know, so there's definitely yeah. no. I'm not bringing her death to that movie. You know, it the movie it by itself worked so phenomenally that uh, I found out years later that she had been, was gone. I mean, I didn't really, I just wasn't familiar with her or her work at the time, and she had a huge career before that i just you know never really paid attention Uh, i was also younger then uh throughout the 90s (laughs) and i saw certain movies but waitress is phenomenal it's now a broadway play 
and this if you have hbo max and uh it's interesting it's sad it's not many documentaries go where this goes and some try but the level of honesty that this has can't be beat maybe it can be at best you can match it you're not gonna get more honest and real than this and that's pretty impressive uh i definitely admire him doing this i don't know that i could (laughs) this would have been a hard movie for a lot of people to make Uh, and he definitely he definitely did it (sighs) very impressive yeah all right the power of the dog Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion, uh, stars Benedict Cumberbatch and uh, Jesse Plemons is a pr- pair of brothers who are driving cattle in the Old West. And it's about a battle between you know, the customs of the Old West and the New West, the new developing world uh, that are kind of coming together here to end one way of life and starting another. And uh, it's a powerful premise to start with. But it also starts to be a movie that you did not expect this to be because you think this is going to be about this bully character played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who was just hateful towards everyone. It's going to be a thorn in everyone's side. And he is, but he's also something else that I did not expect. There is a character by the name. I think it's Bronco Billy, who is this fiction is this mystical character who passed away long before the movie started, but that Benedict Cumberbatch's character just talks about all the time. He talks about how wonderful he was and all the things that he taught him and just the life that they had together. He talks about him that way, but Jesse Plemons doesn't for, and it's very pointed. It's very specific that he doesn't because he sees the relationship to Bronco Billy in a very different way, uh, a very different way that his brother does. He seems to think of it in, in almost traumatic terms. Like this is not something I want to talk about. Whereas Benedict Cumberbatch is effervescent about it. He just can't stop talking about it. And that is very, that's a very important point that comes around to make sense later on. Uh, Kirsten Dunst plays a woman who Jesse Plemons meets and falls in love with and marries. He brings her back to their house, and she's part of this sort of new influence in the home that again, he's, but a Cumberbatch's character is very much opposed to. She also has a son who really doesn't fit in to the Old West in any way. Cody Smith McPhee is this very, uh, He's he's just not a typically masculine guy, and he his lack of masculinity stands out against all these very you know performatively masculine men around him, uh, and it makes him a target. But then he and Phil Benedict Cumberbatch's character develops sort of a, a friendship that there are a lot of different undertones to, and that plays back to the Bronco character uh, that is very fascinating. And the way that goes is just nothing that you could expect. I was really, I was blown away by this. And of course, uh, the, the I love the title, The Power of the Dog. I went I went deeply religious in my review and going through that and the, the religious, what that means and who stands for what. And uh, I love the depth of that. Jane Campion is great at creating depth in that way. Uh, this is an incredibly compelling movie. This is the best performances, I think, of Benedict Cumberbatch's career, as far as I'm concerned. I think he's made a lot of bad movies. I know a lot of people don't like to say that. I think he's made a lot of bad movies. This is a really great movie. Yeah, it took me a while because I have such a... I've kind of defined Benedict Cumberbatch, and that's what he is when I watch the movie. And this role is not in that definition of what I've put on Benedict Cumberbatch. So it took me a good half an hour to break my uh, opinion and stubbornness that I had towards him as an actor. And But it, they Jane Campion did. Uh, and... I honestly wasn't all that familiar with her work. I'd never seen the classic before that we're going to talk about later. And uh, so, you know, and then I spend the weekend and watching two home runs. <laughs> uh, so I'm pretty impressed with her as a director. I, I This was, I, this was a great movie. I didn't even know, like you said, I didn't know where it was going. I didn't, I'm just kind of watching it. And then next thing you know, you're wrapped up in the movie. It's it's a two hour movie. So it's not like it's short, but it didn't feel like it. Uh, you get wrapped up and you just kind of wonder where it's going to go. You got three recognizable faces and Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plums, and Benedict Cumberbatch. And uh, it just, it completely surprises you. And then I even had to, 
after it ended, I had to go back. I wanted to rewatch the last 10 minutes to make sure I understood because it was just so good. And so I, I kind of watched the ending twice. Uh, I, I, this is really, really good. Uh, like, yeah, where that went, I, I was to- that totally got me because the way that she layers that in uh-huh. so brilliantly with visuals, the visual details that she uses to layer in what happens at the end. If you're not paying attention, you will miss it. <laughs> and even if you're paying attention, it's not spoon fed. It's like you said, it's very artfully done for, through visuals and lesser movies. Good movies have done things like this, but not it's more spoon fed and more. Uh, man, that's not even the right phrase I'm wanting to use. It, it's just not as well done as they did it here as she does it here. This is really quite good. Uh, it's on Netflix now. Uh, I agree. This is like it's so weird for me from hating what he was doing at the first half of the first part of this movie because that's not my that's not what I know Benedict Cumberbatch for. To by the end being in love with the character, just I'm amazed by the performance and blown away. That it was quite the experience for me. Uh, I I can't recommend this movie enough. Uh, that's one of my favorite of the year. I mean, I'm really impressed with this movie. <sighs> Anything else in the power of the dog before we move on? It, it's pretty incredible. The uh, like I said, the title, but also the ending is very is very powerful and very unexpected. It's not. I totally had made up in my mind what this movie was going to be. I thought he was going to be this bully ranch hand who makes everybody's lives miserable until finally st- somebody stands up to him. And that's not what this movie is. He's not really actually somebody that has to be stood up to. Uh, he he's a bit of a bully early on, but he's, it's all performative masculinity is the way that I would call it. And, and, and putting on, he has to put on this face in order to hide his other face. And that is so interesting. And he plays that so brilliantly that so subtly that he, as he lays down that armor a little bit and allows himself to become vulnerable, what happens from there is absolute genius. Well, and the way they do it too is it's so real. Like, and that's another lazy f- way of describing it. But in real life, if this were to happen, when he lets his guard down, there's nobody around. You know, he, he's very private when he's doing things like that. And there's it's just just very smart. You know, there, there's no missteps from in direction or story. Uh, I, I just. You know, and I, I too, I, I kind of thought there was going to be a big showdown between Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst, cause, and that was going to be the, you know, the collision somewhere, and it, it was just something else, and uh, I, and, and then you can't say enough about Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plummer for being distracting enough to keep you. I mean, that's to me that again, not the right word, but it, right, they're they stay in their lane so good that allows the rest of the story to travel right. I, I don't know. I just really impressed with this movie. I really, really like it quite a bit. It's almost an element of like misdirection of who's the real villain. Here. Yes. <laughs> Without, you know, it being gimmicky, you know, I mean, it's just yeah, very smart and just, just subtle, but, watchable and the way they pull you in it's unless you're just really not paying attention and you're on your phone the whole time that's the only way i don't think you like this movie i I really think this would grab a lot of people and it's a very very well-made movie and i'd like to see it stick around for award seasons does it have a shot Oh, definitely. I think it definitely does. I think uh, Jane Campion is is right at the forefront of of this of this Oscar season. That's good to hear because I'm all for that. Uh, Speaking of, our classic is The Piano, a movie I've never seen until this weekend. Uh, I think I did see it, but I honestly didn't remember it very well, other than the sex stuff. Uh, well, <laughs> that's stop, for some reason, there. that stayed in my head. I don't know why. And I was, please, aware, yeah, sure, I, was if you want to. I was aware of the sex stuff. I didn't. I'd never seen any of it, but I, I, I'll be honest. I didn't know. I, I didn't even realize the connection between the Jane Campion made both these movies until uh, I finished this one and went back and then saw. So I didn't know the connection. I just I. I also hadn't seen the power of the dog yet after watching this, 
but right off the bat, Miramax, and then it's all. I was just so uncomfortable, and I, we had just watched the Adrian documentary and how Harvey or Harvey Weinstein was trying to add nudity to one of her movies. Uh, they were talking, and so right off the bat, I'm like, oh my god, and I didn't know a woman made this movie, and early on, I'm just like, this is not. I don't know how I feel about this, and then. All of a sudden, it's like the only movie like this could be made by a woman. You can't, you know, and I don't, I'm trying not to be offensive when I say that, but I don't want to see, you know, Martin Scorsese make this movie. You know, it, this would be very uncomfortable for me to, in, in the wrong hands, you know, it wouldn't be as well made. I believe it's, it, it really is like the male gaze right. when you get down to it. And the, the way that changes how, how a particular scene is viewed, uh, it makes it more salacious when you know, a man might make different choices in how they shoot that nudity or how they per, per, you know, portray the sexuality of it. Yeah, the nudity in this literally is you could screenshot it and take it, make a painting of it and hang it on your wall. That's how artistic every frame of it is none of it is paul paul for drawing mother mary and dildos you know that doesn't exist in this at all it is a hundred percent artistic uh right and i just uh, it from the male nudity to the i mean it was just really i i was i don't know i i just it was very well done again but sorry, I would well, just yeah, I, if to... I may, I'm just for those who, yeah, no, but I understand. I'm, I'm with you. The, the, the story here is that a woman is married off to a man who lives in New Zealand. She's from Scotland. She's never met this guy before. And she and her daughter will travel. She's a widow. She travels from Scotland to New Zealand with her piano. Uh, they, they arrive on this beach. Uh, the guy she married, Sam Neill, shows up and says, we're not taking that piano to our house. We're not going to take that through the jungle to the house. Uh, she's desperately connected to the piano because she doesn't talk. So essentially, the, she can't speak. She hasn't spoken in years. Uh, her, she either speaks through her daughter or she th- speaks by playing the piano. Uh, and she eventually, she convinces Harvey Keitel, who is kind of a neighbor who kind of works for Sam Neill's character, or they work together, I guess, uh, she convinces him to take her to the beach so she can play the piano because it's just sitting there on the beach. And he seems to recognize what her connection to the piano is when he hears it. He knows it's beautiful. He knows she's beautiful. That's pretty much the kind of the baseline that he has. He's, he can't read. He, he's not very educated, but he can recognize beauty. And that's kind of that's kind of Harvey Keitel's character's entire arc is that he sees beauty where Sam Beal just seems sort of to see function uh the the function of a wife i have a wife who is supposed to have sex with me and ha- bear my child and fix my food and be prepared when i'm prepared for whatever the traditional you know wife stuff harvey Keitel sees something greater bigger larger you know, he sees art he sees love he sees beauty he can't dis- he doesn't have the words to describe it but he knows what he sees and he recognizes it. and that's kind of the beauty of his character and Holly Hunter embodies that and being silent is kind of part of that. It's all very fascinating. Then, of course, you've got uh, Anna Paquin's character, who is just the single most entertaining thing in the entire movie. Just this vibrant spirit who is running throughout the entire film, uh, stealing every scene and being the most charismatic person in this group of very good actors. So that's really, yeah, that's that's the that's my takeaway on the piano. Yeah. Did she win the Oscar? Or she just got nominated. I believe she did. Yes, I yeah. believe she won. <laughs> she was amazing. Uh, yeah, one of the best, if not the best, child performances I've ever seen. Uh, very, very good. Uh, and yeah, I just, I don't know. The whole Harvey Keitel arc just made me very like. And I'm I'm struggling today, so forgive me, audience. <laughs> but like. <laughs> Again, with, with the Miramax logo popping up at the very beginning, and you know, throwing Harvey Keitel or not Harvey Keitel, Harvey Weinstein, the fact that he did never thought he did anything wrong. He everything he he did, he thought was okay. And then you throw in the Harvey Keitel yeah. character, who's not educated. He's not a smart. He's almost uh, like oh god, oh god, where are you going? No, 
But my point is, (laughs) it's showing how, you know, he doesn't know better. You know, the things that he does, he's so low, uh, you know, on the intelligence spectrum that uh, it it's just an honest reaction and he, you know, he's basically an animal <laughs> when he's acting the way early in some of the things he does. And then to just yeah. know Harvey Weinstein's doing this shit for real in real life as a millionaire. It just, I don't know. It, it was definitely sitting with me the entire movie. And again, another thing that Jane came in has to break from me <laughs> and, you know, takes and is able to, you know, get that out of my head after about the first half an hour of the movie, similar to my Benedict Cumberbatch bullshit I had on the other movie. Uh, I just, I, I really thought this was really good. I thought it was uh, entertaining. I never got pulled out of it. It just kind of pulled me in and broke all my misconceptions or things that were bothering me as I was watching it, uh, especially you know, at one point I had to stop it and then search to see who directed it to make sure it was, you know, someone I could trust. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> man, sorry. I really am struggling today. Forgive me, everybody. But <laughs> these are honest reactions that I'm giving. Yeah, you, so. no. And I, I think you're onto something. I think you're really onto something though with that idea, with the idea that essentially having a woman direct this, it is different from having a man direct this because of, because of that perspective, because of that, the idea essentially of the male, male gaze, the way that a man t- takes in, uh, takes in that type of thing. She, she, she has a certain, she keeps a certain distance from it. That is both. It's still, it's still sexuality and it's still something that is appealing because Holly Hunter is very beautiful, but it's also something that it just looks beautiful on top of it. So it's not slate. It doesn't feel salacious. Even as what Harvey Keitel is doing is kind of creepy, but it's also just sort of on his part. He's very, it's very instinctual what he's doing. He's, He's acting on his sort of animalistic instinct and she is tapping into a side of herself that she's never, she didn't really have before i'm sure maybe she had it with her husband who died we don't know we don't know much about him or anything about him or anything really about her idea of what sex is but she knows that she finds what this is to be appealing and attractive and it 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 gets to her on on emotional and physical levels and it's never the way she reveals that without talking is is spectacular it's never not artfully done, and that's what I love about it. And then where it goes and what happens to her uh, is—I I, just—I I loved how it ended. I love the—it's heartbreaking yet satisfying as well. I don't know. I just was really—I really this was way better. I was expecting homework, uh, and it was far from that. Oh. <laughs> uh, anything else in the piano before you move on <laughs> this feels almost like we're, we're we're filming one of those youtube reaction videos where two two white guys watch the piano <laughs> it, it, it's not not that <laughs> uh, <laughs> i mean if you don't remember ever seeing it and i had never seen it i mean it definitely is I don't know. It was a very good week for me, you know, having, you know, seeing Adrian power the dog in the piano. It was just one thing after another, just high bar, you know, ideas and movies and art. And yeah. uh, it, it was. And you didn't have to see Benedetta. So <laughs> that would have been part of that would have been hard, you know, throwing that into this week, especially with as conflicted as I am on things and this guy, you know, where my head's gone. And then you throw in the Jeffrey Epstein thing. This was a, I'm glad I only watched these three movies. Uh, yeah. I, when you look back on it, I had a pretty strange week. <laughs> a lot of, yeah. Yeah. Really very strange. Uh, 
I didn't watch any of the 91 movies. We had uh, a play in the field of love and Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. So, Yeah, no. I, I refuse to sit through another Star Trek movie. I'm with you. Next week. I'm done. I'm done, Star Trek. <laughs> Next week, we got Encounter, National Champions, West Side Story, The Unforgivable on Netflix. I think that's a Sandra Bullock movie. And I don't know if you have access to this, but The Humans, I know it's an A24 movie on Showtime. It just came out. I'm going to be watching that tomorrow. Awesome. Uh, Our classic is Moulin Rouge. And in 1991, Hook and the Last Boy Scout turned 30. Or I guess they were born in 1991. They turned 30 this year. Uh, 91 sucked. (laughs) It really, it really is so bad. Like, we've had nothing to watch for 91 movies. It's been awful. I mean, South of the Land was no discoveries. so early on. <laughs> the biggest discovery is, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, two. it's bad. That was part two. <laughs> two, uh, part two. Yeah, I mean, Delicatessen, was, I finally got to watch that, but I don't yeah, know. Maybe you've seen it there already. I don't know, but... Uh, yeah, it's and it's not getting any better. Uh, I think JFK is the week after that. With it, oh god, fuck JFK. Yeah. So anyway, uh, let's jump over to our flick chart and do that till either something funny happens or my recorder dies. Whatever comes first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, where are you at, Jumanji? Welcome to the jungle or the score. Uh, the, the Jumanji. Yeah. Yeah, Rock and Kevin Hart beat De Niro and Brando. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As usual. Uh, yeah, awesome. I haven't had internet problems like this in a while. <laughs> All right, Bloodsport or Wonderful of the Cuckoo's Nest? That's a tough one. Cuckoo's Nest, obviously. Yes. Tough one. <laughs> uh, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion kissed the girls. Romy and Michelle. Yeah. The Silence of the Lambs, the apartment. Ooh, wow. So different, but so brilliant. Wow. Oh, fuck. Um, it's the apartment for me. I love that movie. I watch it. Every, I watch it anytime I can. I love Silence of the Lambs. I think it's great, and I'll watch it too. But like, if you give me a choice, I'm gonna pick the apartment. That is hard because they are so different. They're <laughs> so different, but they're equally brilliant. And the only reason I. I, I have to take Sons of the Lambs just because of the history I have with it as opposed to I, I don't have as much with the apartment. The apartment is amazing. So I, I feel bad doing that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see what happens. You pick, George. <laughs> the apartment it is. I don't feel bad about it being chosen. Uh, but... Yeah, that was a that was a good one. I don't. Uh, how do you? Yeah, that's hard. When you have movies right. that equal, they don't compare so, in any way, really. Like not one iota. <laughs> Chronicles <laughs> of Narnia, Prince Caspian, or Year One. Um, Fishing with Gandhi. They both they're both garbage movies. Uh, as much as I love Jack Black, Year One is hard to watch. It is that level of bad. And Prince Caspian is, I mean, it's a, it's a sleeping pill in movie form. All right. We'll just get rid of them. <laughs> the Virgin Suicides, Shallow Hal. Virgin Suicides. But I love Hal, I love Shallow Hal. I think that one's actually very funny. Yeah, I think it's very underrated. Uh, frequency Shooter. Frequency. Even with that fucking weirdo in it. <laughs> Friday the 13th, <laughs> Final Destination 2. Uh, Friday the 13th. Oh, wow. Just because it's more, it, it's a classic, I guess. 
Final Destination 2 is Final Destination 2. People yeah. at least remember Friday the 13th. Yeah. Star Wars, The Lake House. I can't think of The Lake House without thinking of the uh, the How Did This Get Made episode where I think it was Jason Benzoukas suggested that Keanu Reeves should stick his dick in that post office box to see what happens. <laughs> Ever since then, I'm like, I can't, I can't even look at that movie without just laughing. Uh, it's Star Wars. <laughs> I'm not going to vote. I'll just let you have it. Uh, the Bridge on the River Kwai, Friday the 13th, Part 2. <laughs> bridge on the River Kwai. Easily. Rango, Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. Rango. Yes, Rango's very good. The girl with the dragon tattoo, the Fincher version, or Men of Honor. <laughs> the girl with the dragon tattoo. A streetcar named Desire, just friends. Streetcar. Yeah. The third man, a walk to remember. The third man. Yes. The Incredibles Copland. Oh, by the way, in that Beatles documentary, yes. there's a, just a there's a moment in there where where they uh, just they're noodling around and they just start playing the theme for the third man. It's so cool. Oh, wow. <laughs> I haven't watched it yet because of like we have Hulu through with Disney Plus and all, but I can't get it to play on my TV. I can't get it to play on my phone. So I need to possibly cancel it just i tried bundling everything if i had them separate it worked but when i bundle it for whatever reason i'm having trouble so i haven't watched it yet uh, i did watch the get back little clip where paul's yeah. just kind of playing random bullshit and next thing you know they're playing get back or they wrote it i thought that was pretty amazing <laughs> yeah it is uh, uh incredibles yeah as much as i want to i don't love incredibles but it's better than copland i Copland's a movie I've defended forever, and I know I can't defend it over certain things. Uh, Captain Fantastic, Liar, Liar. Captain Fantastic is a movie that is so far up its own ass that I would pick Liar, Liar over it. Yeah. <laughs> I did not like that one. Kung Fu Hustle, Identity. Identity. I don't understand what people like about Kung Fu Hustle. I'm sorry. I know I should, but I don't get it. Here you go. Howard the Duck or Jingle All the Way? <laughs> Howard the Duck. <laughs> yeah. Just because it's got duck boobs. Just because some weirdo was, was making a kid's movie and thought, you know what this duck needs? Boobs. <laughs> you fucking weirdo. Congratulations. You've stayed in my mind for over 35 years. Is Paul Verhoeven at all re- involved in Howard the Duck? Or Runny Harlan or any of those guys. <laughs> uh, the Jackal, old school. Old school, but only because only the version I remember in my head 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> not, not how it actually is. It is weird, though, going back to it and we didn't like it. Yeah. But it hasn't, I, I, like, I can still go back to that time and remember having fun watching it. I don't know, some reason that still sticks with me. Uh, but anyway, European Vacation Minority Report. Minority Report by a lot. I've never seen it, so I will let you have it. The Expendables, My Girl. My Girl. <laughs> Just love when he dies, right? <laughs> the bees. His glasses. He needs his glasses. <laughs> That'd be great if in the Expendables one of them dies and like Jason Statham's like his glasses. His glasses. His gun. He needs his gun. Where's his gun? <laughs> He's just crying. He can't control himself and he just wants to give Schwarzenegger or Stallone his gun. He has to be buried with his gun, man. <laughs> Maybe in the new one. Because I think Stallone filmed for like one day from what I understand. <laughs> 
and then he went on to some QAnon thing. Uh, did you hear about that? No, what? He went, Stallone went on some yacht or something like that, and he had a Q on his uh, polo. Oh, shit. But yeah. The name of where he was on was called the Quantum of Solace. That was the name of the yacht he was on. So that's why, and underneath the Q, okay. it says that. But people went <laughs> nuts. And he had to get on Instagram and, goes, and zoom in on the shirt and goes, no, <laughs> it's nothing to do with QAnon. <laughs> you guys got to. I was just on a boat called Quantum of Solace. <laughs> that's funny. Oh, that's good. <laughs> League of but, that, their- but you know, of course, that that's just that's just the ship where he's hiding JFK Jr. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I'm not even gonna say anything about Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> but that's where my head was at. We're already, we're already on a list somewhere for talking about Jeffrey Epstein. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> A League of Their Own, Maze Runner. A League of Their Own. The Abyss, Notorious. Notorious. Yes. Catwoman, The Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight. You know, I, I, Hateful Eight is like, it, it's so much better of an experience of watching a movie than even just that movie. And like, I think I love Hateful Eight just for the way we saw it. <laughs> Yeah, but I've gone back to I, I like the movie more and more too. That's the weird part. Uh, but it, everything Tarantino does is somehow gets better every time you watch it. Is this David Lynch movie a movie? <laughs> I've never heard of it. Maybe. Right. Uh, the Gleaners and I, the opposite of sex. Not seen that one. I mean, I should have seen that one because it's Agnes Varda and she's brilliant. But I have not seen that one. An American, pre- uh, the American president, the opposite of sex. The opposite of sex. I've never seen it. <laughs> I would go with you though. The man from Uncle, the hateful eight. The hateful eight. Yeah, serendipity, hot shots. Hot shots. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. <laughs> God, I wish he was here for that. Uh. <laughs> Psycho Shrek the Third. Psycho. The Princess and the Frog Society? <laughs> what the hell is that? So- oh, God. Society is that? Oh, God. That's oh. that. Oh. Oh. Princess and the Frog, please. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Oh, that movie was awful. Oh, I wish I wanted to forget that one. All right, last one. One full of the cuckoo's nest or Jaws? Cuckoo's nest. <laughs> it didn't make it as fun as I was hoping. <laughs> For, Why? Unfortunately, I agree with you. Well, they're both classic movies. and Yeah, they are. Uh, it wasn't that hard for me, though, when I looked at it, because I, I, I think Cuckoo's Nest is an unparalleled masterpiece. Jaws is just a really good popcorn movie. Yeah, one of the best popcorn movies, but yes, I agree. Cuckoo's Nest is one of the best of all time. All right, that's our show. We will see you next week.